Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week I am talking to Mike Savage about his book, The Return of Inequality, Social Change and the Weight of the Past. We discuss the renewed focus on inequality in social science and politics more generally, different forms of inequality and how they're linked, and different theoretical approaches to understanding inequality and social class from Marx to Bourdieu. As always, uh, thank you to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. We really need to continue to increase our numbers on Patreon. So please do consider signing up to support us. It's what allows us to keep bringing you this show. You can find us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please consider sharing this and other episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Now, a quick word from our sponsor before my interview with Mike Savage. The Left Book Club is a not-for-profit subscription book club. It's an affordable way to get a carefully chosen list of inspiring books that explore radical alternatives to the current crises of capitalism. Every book is printed in a unique edition and you can choose between 6 or 12 books a year, plus author events and discounts from publishers including Pluto Press and Tribune Magazine. I personally receive books from the Left Book Club and I find it a really great way to expand my reading beyond the kind of range of books I would ordinarily choose myself. And a World to Win listeners can get their first month subscription for free by going to leftbookclub.com slash member and using the code WINFREE. That's WINFREE, all in caps, at checkout. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. I am here today with Mike Savage. How are you doing, Mike? I'm very well, thank you. I'm a bit hot, but I'm I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes. Um, well, we were just saying I am actually in Colombia at the moment, uh, which I believe is less hot than the UK, um, but is an interesting place to be reflecting on the question of inequality, which is what we're going to be talking about today. A very very unequal country, which has just elected its first social democratic president, which is, yeah, a very interesting time to be here. Um, and I think, yeah, leads nicely into this uh, this question that I wanted to ask you to begin with, which is why people suddenly seem to be so much more concerned about inequality today, why it's kind of cropping up so much more in politics and academia after several decades, really, of um, a narrative that suggested that inequality didn't really matter that it would kind of at least sort itself out. Why do you think that uh, inequality is becoming such a, a central theme today? Yes. Well, I think in all sorts of ways, um, inequality is on the rise again. And I think uh, what we have realised really since the 2008 financial crash is that the sense of optimism, which was, you know, that as societies um, grow economically, therefore you can expect inequality to reduce has been punctured. And now we have increasingly um, become aware that actually the trends are towards increasing inequality, not only in economic terms, but the, I mean, the economic facts are fairly well researched now in terms of um, the share of income taken by the top 1% and the rise of wealth, but also the way that inequality impacts on pretty much every aspect of social, cultural, political life. The rise of wealthy elites, 
the challenges to democracy. And so we are having to come to terms with the fact that um, inequality defines much of our current uh, malaise. Yeah, and what we've kind of seen over the last several decades, I suppose, has been more of a focus on discussions of poverty. So, you know, you have the Millennium Development Goals, now the SDGs, lots of attempts to kind of make poverty history or whatever the particular phrase or campaign slogan of the time was. And inequality was kind of seen as a bit of an outdated focus. There was this idea that, you know, a rising tide would lift all boats and it was just up to uh, technocratic governments to make sure that the gains from growth were being distributed equally. Why do you think that we're now specifically so much more concerned with the problem, in inverted commas, of the rich rather than just the problem of poverty? Yeah, you're exactly right, Grace. Um, you know, the dominant view was so long as everyone or, or most people benefiting somehow or other, we needn't worry too much about what was happening at the top. Um, you know, in the famous words of Tony Blair and Mandelstein, no, I, don't, I don't mind if people get squeaky rich mm. as long as they pay their taxes. And I think what we're realising now is absolutely that is the wrong way of understanding the challenge of inequality because such has been the rise of top top levels of income and wealth that the people who benefit from that are just becoming disproportionately powerful across the globe mm. and they are not subscribing to democratic values and they are behaving in ways which are incredibly not only selfish but having massively deleterious effects on everybody else. So I completely you know, support this view that, yes, it is important, obviously, to raise people in poverty. And then there have been significant achievements in many parts of the world. We shouldn't forget that. You know, we shouldn't forget that poverty, recognising it's not always easy to measure it. But, you know, not, by whatever measure you use, it has um, improved in the global south, much of the global south, not all of the global south, but much of it. But uh, we still have not adequately faced up to the way in which elites have now become increasingly powerful agents. Your book explicitly adopts a historical approach to the study of inequality. And that's pretty unusual in both economics and in sociology, the two fields which are most concerned with this idea of inequality. Why did you think it was necessary to take a explicitly historical approach to the subject? I'm certainly not the first person to do that. Uh, mm. And of course, you know, in many respects, I'm in a dialogue with the economist Thomas Piketty, who has published yeah. these two major books, Capital of the 21st Century in 2014 in the, in the English language, and then uh, 2020, I think it was, Capital Ideology. Oh. And he is really, you know, really important work because he is saying we can't just look at inequality in a cross-sectional way, as to say, putting history in brackets, if you like, because if we do that, we don't recognise the way in which inequality is bound up with the um, re-entrenchment, if you like, if you want to put it in those terms, of historical forces. And like, so he has some really excellent economic measures of how inequality is returning to levels it was in the 19th century. And I draw upon some of his work, but I really want to pursue that logic a bit further than he does. By so What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to puncture this very widespread belief which you see in the media and you see in um, political discussion, which is somehow that we are being transformed by digitalization, by artificial yeah. intelligence, by this glitzy world. And if only we can go a bit faster, you know, and, and be prepared to accept the excitement of you know, innovation, somehow we will get out of our current woes. 
And that, in my view, is a fundamentally misleading way of understanding our predicament. Because it's actually, if you recognise that inequality is increasing, and if you recognise that a great deal of that inequality is bound up with wealth, which is to say um, assets, property, financial investment, savings, then these are assets which are, uh, which are acquired over time and they build over time. And therefore, they represent historical force of, of the past. And therefore, we are in many respects, the, you know, have, have to recognise that inequality is about the return of these um, historic forces. And it was kind of interesting, as I was writing the book, I began writing it in 2015, you know, very much as part of a debate with Piketty from a more sociological perspective. But as I was doing that, then, of course, I was surrounded by things like the rise of the Me Too movement, oh. which is all about historic, you know, historic sexual um, abuse and the way in which those those inequalities and injustices are fester over time. You don't just forget about them. They have a long-term legacy, similarly with Black Lives Matter. And so, it's, you know, this is a very powerful, I think, way of understanding the current predicament. What I found really interesting about the book itself, your dialogue with Piketty and the way that you're talking right now is that there's some very interesting, what to me sound like very interesting parallels with basically the work of Marx, right? The idea of the need to take a historical approach to the understanding of the development of capitalism, capital itself as kind of dead labor, which is, you know, accumulated over time, the importance of the weight of the past. I mean, Piketty's book was even called Capital with a, a kind of explicit nod to Marx's work. Much of kind of sociology over the kind of, you know, 20th and bits of the 21st century was concerned with pushing back against this kind of structural analysis with class-based A, politics, and B, political economic analysis. Do you think that, and you reference Marx's work in your book, do you think that, you know, as some people have said, Marx is kind of back, back in fashion, that we should be taking some of his ideas more seriously? Yes, um, completely. So, you know, I was, um, I, I was, I had to put this, I was forged in the kind of Marxist um, way of thinking, oh. you know, as a student and as a PhD student, as a as a young sociologist in the 1980s and um, experiencing uh, those years under Margaret Thatcher, you see many of these contradictions and issues coming to the fore. And of course, one of the advantages of that Marxist perspective is this capacity and this concern to situate the current day in terms of the long-term contradictions and accumulation dynamics of, of capitalism. I think there so there is a sense in which I think my book does try and more explicitly return to my interest in Marx and that Marxist debate. You know, for, for many years, because I'm, I'm also interested in Pierre Bourdieu, French sociologist, whose relationship to Marxism is a bit, you know, complicated, shall we say. Oh. People thought, oh, well, you know, perhaps, perhaps you know, the Marxism isn't so strong. But, I, you know, I've always had that sense about let's place the recognition of capital at the heart of our way of thinking. And I saw... Bourdieu as allowing us to extend that kind of logic towards recognising it's not just economic that these forms of capital work, but also around cultural and social issues. And so I do think we have to kind of re- return to a Marxist um, paradigm is too strong, but Marxist orientation. Mm. I mean, at the same time, you know, I have this chapter at the end, which I found difficult to write, but I thought I should try and write it about what is to be done which borrows, of course, from, from Lenin's famous um, yeah. pamphlets on that issue. Because 
whilst I think there's a great deal of insight and value in the in a, in a Marxist framing of our current predicament, I'm also trying to say that we need to rethink the political agenda a bit and try and find ways of creating alliances with uh, environmental politics, with social movements, with a kind of a popular front, if you like, of groups, yeah. rather than um, retreat to some kind of a schismatic vanguard of the proletariat approach. <laughs> so there's a kind of, I would say, complicated, but I think sympathetic relationship to Marxism in the book. Mm. Yeah, no, that definitely came through, I think. We'll come back to uh, the question of what is to be done at the end. Um, mm. But you mentioned there Bourdieu and your engagement with Bourdieu. And I thought your discussion of Bourdieu was one of the most interesting parts of the book, actually. Because you know, Bourdieu has obviously been like hegemonic in sociology for quite a long time. And you reproduce his original field maps. Um, and the thing that, I mean, that came out, because I had read Bourdieu in a while, and then looking at it, the way you presented it, I was like, wow, this is actually much more outdated than I remember. And your point about the extent to which the cultural and economic dimensions have begun to overlap, i.e. it's becoming increasingly difficult to accumulate cultural capital without having, you know, in inverted commas, economic capital, is really interesting. Now, you know, you could say that there are so many potential explanations to this, right? You could say that it's, you know, the colonization of the arts by capital. Um, you could say that it's actually, it says something about the changing nature of, um, of class. What do you think that this collapse in the distinction between the cultural and the economic dimensions tells us about how inequality has changed over time and also about the utility of Borges' schema when discussing inequality today? Yeah. I agree with you, actually. I think the bit of the book, which I think is perhaps most uh, theoretically original, it's predominantly a book of synthesis and trying to put things together. But I think if there is an original argument in there, it's probably to do with the way I try and rethink Bourdieu's conception of of the field. And and the argument goes, basically, that Bourdieu's conception of the field is is similar to much social science, actually, which is that we tend to think about society as spatial organisations in which we're looking at you know different groups or people within a space within a field or within a set of exchanges who are relating together now it's very powerful but it's not adequate for capturing this historical dimension which i want to try and bring out now of course this is also uh, it's an interesting argument for me to have because much of my work in the 2000s and before but and a bit after has been very much informed by that Bourdieuian approach and indeed, I mean, some listeners may remember the Great British Class Survey, which I worked on, mm. which got a lot of interest when it was published um, 20, 2013, 10 years ago nearly, which are very much, you know, thinking about the, how do we apply Bourdieu to understanding class in modern Britain. Um, and there is, a, you're absolutely right, there is a sense in which um, what I try and argue in this book is that actually the three forms of capital which Bourdieu talks about, economic capital, cultural capital and social capital, um, they're differently weighted, if you want to put it those terms. That is to say, it's not as if they're all equivalent in terms of how much advantage they convey. And that although Bourdieu set most of his time on cultural capital, these days, such has been the increase in economic capital that I wouldn't say it hasn't been collapsed into economic capital. I think it still exists, but I definitely think it still exists. But we have to place it within the overall primacy of the economic dimension. There's, there's different ways of thinking about that, but one of them which I think is a kind of commonsensical way, but not completely um, unhelpful, 
is to draw upon this point that there's, you know, that such is the way in which you can accumulate wealth. That there's almost no upper limit. You know, Elon, I don't know how much Elon Musk is worth these days. I don't know how many billions of billions it is, but, but you know, the point is it's a vast amount and you can keep on increasing that. With cultural capital, uh, you can't mm. keep on, you know, watching more and more things on television and, and following more and more music. Um, you know, okay, we're all, you know, to some extent, we're all, all more omnivorous than we used to be, but there's a limit, even so. And same with true with social capital. You know, okay, we can be on Twitter and Facebook, but the number of people you know is going to be limited. So we do need to recognise, I think, that the kind of the upper levels of capital are dominated by that economic dimension. So the way I, I would put it in terms of cultural capital is that therefore Bourdieu's maps and the analyses of France in the 1960s and 70s, which he became famous for, and which have become, you know, massively cited throughout the world, you know, they were from a particular time and a particular place. And it's unlikely now that the kind of the um, avant-garde cultural uh, intellectual figure has such a degree of um, weight within the social space that it, than they did in the 1960s. Mm. So... But just in terms of, you, you, you were pushing me in terms of, um, is Bourdieu still useful given that fact? And I was, yeah. so what I want to try and argue is, yes, he is. <laughs> because it, there's also an interesting phenomenon, isn't there, which is that um, education and access to elite education yeah. has become even more powerful than it was when he was writing. So mm. getting it to Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and wherever else has become even more compelling to elites than it used to be the case. So, that, And that's, of course, those institutions kind of convey uh, cultural capital. And, you know, you can't simply buy your, buy your way into those places. Yeah, sure, in the US certainly, and in the UK you pay high fees, but there's also that access in terms of your ability to pass exams and show yeah. aptitude. And so I think there's the issue about cultural capital is this being much more oriented around questions of the inheritance of economic capital and it's playing into elite strategies for reproduction. So it's still important, but it's important with respect, I think, to the to the power of economic capital. To kind of go back to these questions around uh, history and the importance of history, which I think links to the, these questions around inheritance, which concern both you and Piketty, I'm interested in when the idea of inequality emerges, when it becomes a first, you know, an intellectual concern and then a much more general social concern. Because historically, you know, we have had social formations that are in a lot of ways much more unequal than the ones we have today, but they are kind of stratified in very rigid and hierarchical terms. Like a feudal society is is highly unequal, but you would never have spoken about inequality. So is inequality inevitably bound up with the emergence of capitalism and how did you find that concerns with this subject have changed not just over the last kind of few decades but over the the long history of capitalism yeah that's absolutely right um inequality is not it's not a new thing it's been a pretty much a constant that much of certainly you know uh, human history in the last few centuries should we say and indeed, you know, in many dimensions, inequality is less marked, you know, than it than it has been marked than it has been the case in the past. And we should, so we shouldn't 
we shouldn't uh, embrace a simplistic, oh, you know, inequality is everywhere and it's worse than it's ever been sort of discourse, because that's not the case. You know, we have to be more nuanced. And we also have to be more nuanced about the way in which inequality in certain parts of the world has not not got worse, at least, and in some respects has got better. So, yes, that's absolutely right. So you, you raise a very interesting question, that given inequality has been so pervasive across space and time, why should it have become more of a contentious issue in recent decades than it was uh, 40, 50 years ago in, in many countries? And I, I, I would say that those inequalities played out with respect to specific issues, specific, say, um, social class conflicts, if you think oh. about the rise of socialism, the rise of you know, communist movements, Labour Party, Labour movements in the nineteenth um, century and twentieth century, thinking of the thinking of the, for instance, the work of the great Marxist historian E. B. Thompson on the rise of the English working class, yeah. played out around slavery and questions around racism. That so it played out with respect to specific group identity issues, if you like, but it did not cross fertilize or synthesize into a sense about inequality in a more generalising way. And I think that is something which has happened in recent decades. And I try and trace, I try and trace this um, by looking at the trends in social science work. Uh, and I am interested in the fact that although economics has historically not made inequality a central theme, economists are now indeed uh, paying more attention to it. And we can see it, it re-emerging as a growing um, area within that discipline. But also you can find sociology, anthropology, geography, political science, all becoming much more interested in equality. And that excites me because I do think there is a sense in which we, we are coming to realise whatever our disciplinary perspectives, whatever our theoretical orientations, that this is a kind of unifying theme. So I have in, I have in the book a bit of a comparison between the debate on inequality or you know the study of inequality with the debate about climate change which is because I, I would see climate change and um, the issue of environmental sustainability as a kind of twin to the question of inequality now now the issue of climate change and also all about history it's about the renewal it's about the way in which our use of the planet ha- has having long-term impacts and we can't ever forget about that it's about the carbon deposits. It's about our long-term relationship to the environment coming back to haunt us in, a, in very severe ways. And that's exactly how I see inequality. It's about this sense of the crystallisation of long-term historical processes. That brings me really nicely onto my next question, um, because the next thing I was going to ask you was about the tendency that we have at the moment to kind of split our understanding of inequality into lots of different discrete areas. So you'll often see discussions of inequality in a particular country sorted into kind of income inequality, wealth inequality, racial, gender, increasingly regional inequality. Yet we know in a similar way, I suppose, to these questions around cultural and economic capital, we know that these categories overlap, not entirely, but to a very significant extent. You know, if you're studying racial inequality in the US, for example, you're looking at the failure to correct historic injustices that span the political, cultural, um, economic, social dimensions and which are, manifest themselves in racial inequality itself, but racial inequality that is substantially um, reflected in you know, the massive 
wealth gap between um, African-Americans and the rest of the population, for example. So is it useful to adopt such a fractured approach to the understanding of inequality? Should we try and, I suppose, expose and underline the ways in which these kinds of inequality reinforce one another? Yeah, that's exactly um, an issue which concerns me in the book. And so I, I do try and convey in the early parts of the book a degree of frustration about the way in which inequality has broadened out in some quarters to a kind of generalised, oh, it's everywhere, you know, here's another inequality, you know, don't forget about this sort of approach. And if you read, you know, if you read something like The Guardian, for instance, when, when The Guardian is, you know, perfectly decent paper, <laughs> but I'm not surprised. This is not anti-Guardian comment, actually, but if you do read The Guardian, pretty much every day you can find a, a news story about inequality here. You know, so here's another aspect of inequality. And this partly reflects the fact that any kind of any kind of walk of life, in any phenomenon that you study, you can find inequalities. That is to say differences in it. Um, it's almost a tautology when you've got any kinds of data in, in front of you. Um, and because we've now got big data and we've got so much people doing so much research, we can find another way of inequality. And then you can say, aha, here's another inequality. Oh, look at this. And let's not forget about this. Now, of course, don't get me wrong. I'm not, to, uh, that, that work is important. It's very important. But the danger is exactly that we just lose an overarching sense about what the big picture is. Now, here, I, I hope I, I, I tread a path which is sensitive to the need not to collapse the inequality back into kind of over simplistic terms, unifying terms, because we have to recognise that issues around racism, sexism, um, ableism, ageism and, and classism, are, are they all have their separate aspects. But I also think it's important for us to think about how we can try and, and um, understand how they relate together rather than break, break them down into boxes or typologies or whatever. So... What I, what I argue in the book is, yes, uh, whilst we must recognise what I call categorical or group inequalities in their own terms and not try and collapse them into something else. So I, I don't think this book is an economically reductionist book, or at least I hope it's not. Here I pick upon um, and develop, I think, an argument which Piketty, again, not just Piketty, actually Marx, of course, does it in his way and um, Bourdieu in a different way, which is let's think about capital and wealth. Mm. What's important about capital and wealth? Because they are resources, assets, whatever you want to call them, which allow different kinds of inequalities to cohere around them. And so they, inequalities in wealth, as you were saying just now, have a massive uh, racial element. White elites predominate. And because wealthy people have got so much wealthier in recent decades, and because most of those wealthy people were white men, so it remains the case that it's predominantly been white men who benefited from the recent rise of wealth inequality. So rather than try and separate out and say, oh, look, these are different, I think the, the, the focus upon wealth allows us to recognise actually how the different forms of inequality, axes of inequality, can cohere around some certain common principles. It's become kind of unfashionable to argue that the wealth of the rich is kind of premised upon the degradation of the lives of the poor, which would imply that like, you can't have capitalism without inequality. Do you think that there's any evidence for that proposition in your work? Do you think that it's true to argue that the wealth of the very rich is not just 
disrupting society and, uh, you know, creating kind of social problems of comparison and disrupting democracy, but that that wealth is actually actively in one way or another kind of extracted from those at the bottom. I don't step in too much into the debates about exploit- theories of exploitation versus theories of rent, because mm. again, I think that those can those can lead us into kind of you know, a, a more schismatic way of thinking about things. But completely, and again, I think the the point about historical dimension is is important because the way to think about that is forms of ex, expropriation associated with colonialism and capitalism. Yeah, uh, in the inception of you know manuf- industrial capitalism, if you like. They stay with us. You know, those residues are are still with us because historically they have been continued. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, I would want. I would not want to make, uh, make an argument that those perspectives are not helpful in understanding the, the the fortunes of the super wealthy today. At, at the same time, as I said, this is not a, a, an issue I push particularly hard in the book. I'm, I'm interested in the fact that this conception of the way in which the super rich. Uh, not just the super rich, actually, but the moderately rich too, depend upon forms of rent, you know, a kind of unearned income. That's yeah. quite a nice way of understanding how forms of action which may not appear to be directly exclusive or discriminatory, and here's a kind of nod to Marx as well, you know, people renting out their homes, you know, or for whatever reason, even those can have um, an exclusionary effect. So I quite like the way in which we can try and think about forms of inequality as rent is being linked with debates about expropriation and extractivism. Um, You mentioned there historical injustices surrounding kind of colonialism and imperialism, um, and you do talk about empire, basically, in your book. How do you understand that term empire? Because it's used very differently uh, by different authors. We've already spoken about Lenin once, but famously, you know, Lenin's idea of uh, imperialism and, you know, monopoly capitalism is the highest stages of capitalism. What's your understanding of this term um, and how does it fit into this discussion around inequality? Yeah, so that's a very important part of my book, I think. And it's a point which I wasn't really um, aware of when I began writing the book. I I wanted to try and think about the challenge of inequality, what does it consist of? And the question around empire and um, the, uh, the renewal of imperial forms of domination, however you want to call it, kind of emerged as I was writing it. And the logic, well, there's several different logics in my arguments, but one of them is that so many of our social science paradigms and much of our way of thinking about society is presumed on on the, on the nation state as being you know, the unit in which we work. And we kind of assume that, yes, okay, in the past there were those imperial things, you know, but during the 20th century... To a greater or lesser extent, but you know, predominantly we have moved towards a world of nation states, which, yeah, sure, there's migration and there's transnational flows, but we can treat them analytically at least, and for measurement purposes, as units in which you can look at different groups. And indeed, actually, this way of thinking about society as sets of nation states is actually also very strong in the work of the economist. And here probably is my biggest not disagreement, but um, different emphasis, at least from the work of economists like Piketty, who predominantly look at inequality in nation A, B and C and compare them and compare the trends. And I just got really interested in the fact that we should not be so um, arrogant about assuming that our particular paradigms, which came into fruition, into, into prominence at a particular moment in time, 
tied up with the nation state have any kind of trans-historical logic. And actually, because I became it, so I became really interested in this idea that if we are thinking about elites as kind of returning to the historical stage because they've been empowered by wealth and they're also driving new forms of wealth extraction and thinking about how to maximise their assets and wealth going forward, then that is really returning us to a, a much more traditional way of social organisation, which was around various kinds of imperial formations. And the, the issue about these imperial formations is that they they do straddle uh, boundaries, national boundaries, and they do find ways of webbing into different networks of extraction of resources and power. So I found that a very powerful way of trying to understand what was going on. And I was particularly mindful although this is left-handing a bit in the book, and this is not a book which deliberately focuses upon the UK. I try and take a global perspective. But of course, I am British, and much of my research has been on the UK. And this was the UK which has experienced Brexit and the recent political developments which, um, which we're familiar with. And I just became increasingly influenced by this argument, and Gaminda Bamba, influential sociologist, has also written about this, that you know, Britain has never been a nation. We're not a nation. We have always been an empire, hmm. and those imperial forms of, of domination, of power, remain with us. And, and here's the point about the return of history, not just they were always with us, and we had to come to terms with them. And it, Actually, they, get, they, get, they are intensifying again. And although this isn't in the book, this points to more recent work I've been doing with um, economist Aaron Advani and uh, legal scholar Andy Summers on the, kind of the non-bomb phenomenon in the UK which is, again, the, the non-dom phenomenon goes back to the 19th century, yeah. 18th century, part of the British Empire, um, but it's now a powerful part of neoliberal financial capitalism. So I, I just think this notion of you know empire, and I, I'm, a, I'm taking empire in a fairly loose way to say it's a form of extraterritorial governance which is bound up with the um, activities and interests of elites of different kinds is now a kind of resurgent phenomenon again. And with that is a major challenge to uh, forms of democratic uh, national governance, which were never, ever completely secure, as we know. But, um, they are getting weaker as, as we speak. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting point, right? And it does go back to a lot of Marx's most interesting work on and that Lenin took forward about these kind of geographic inequalities and how you know you can analyze a lot of the idea of the relationship between the core and the periphery is looking at the uh, distinct growth of, of town and countryside and that point that these geographic inequalities are emerging between nations but also within nations at the same time or not emerging but growing so you've got you know big, powerful cities like London and New York tearing away from the rest of their countries. And then the divides between the rich world and the poor world after several decades of being told that, you know, the rest of the world was modernizing and catching up, uh, becoming increasingly entrenched. And as you say, that being really significantly linked to a kind of form of financial financialized globalization and the governance of that process of financial globalization that is extraordinarily extractive. So, you know, the classic thing being sub-Saharan Africa loses three times more each year in capital flight than it gains in international development aid. And yet those processes can be quite difficult to govern just from a kind of national 
uh, framework. We also know that they're worsened by the kind of international frameworks that are used to govern them. So whether you're thinking about kind of the necessity of capital account liberalization or things like bilateral investment treaties containing, uh, what are they called? The the investor state dispute settlements, right? Things that kind of entrench the power of capital over labor. So what do you think we can do both nationally in terms of policy and also at the international level to kind of try and contain and maybe even reverse some of these, the more negative effects of, of financialization at the level of the world economy? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the right question to pose, isn't it? About the way in which these key activities are taking place and through various transnational mechanisms and it is hard and indeed getting getting harder in many respects for, for specific nation states to regulate or control these activities given given those flows um so look i i am ultimately and i'm not you know uh, the book does not go down the lines of a you know a, a set of policies at the end of it which say if we do if we do this yeah we live in a better place i just think it's much more complex than that and yeah. But it's more of a kind of call for people to be to be more sensitive uh, and more uh, aware of these issues with a view to us developing strategies together. I think it's clear that I'm sceptical. Sadly, I'm sceptical of, of the capacity of specific nation states to just do things by themselves. I think it does, as you say, require us to think seriously about how we try and coordinate activities between social movements, uh, groups in different countries. I do still think that particular models of successful policies introduced in some nations can have a difference and can act as a kind of spur to be used across the world. And here, you know, again, although I'm not a policy person, I do ultimately, at the end of my book, talk about a wealth tax. Because I think wealth tax yeah. matters in all sorts of ways. It matters because it is symbolically saying wealth, you know, is the, is the key way in which all forms of inequality cohere and syncretize and synthesize together. And it does that on the basis of some kind of mechanisms of, um, any, of expo- expropriation, and it should be therefore liable to public intervention. And I do think there is a shift in public opinion. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's modest in some areas, but it's absolutely more of an issue which is being debated and I think if it, a wealth tax was to be introduced in some countries, the US would be one example, the UK, then it would be very symbolic as well. I think it would be a marker that this issue was being looked at. Now, um, a wealth tax by itself is not going to be enough. And there is the issue about what was again, commonly said, you know, if you put a wealth tax in a particular country where rich people, wealthy people leave and go somewhere else, um, actually... I think the evidence for that is not is not great. I think the evidence is, is not not particularly in my book, but more generally, actually, rich people, wealthy people tend to stay where they have interests and where they have networks, with a few kind of exceptions to that. Um, so I think it's overstated, but we do need to think about issues of financial transparency, how we link together people's records and accounts between different. Countries now there has been some developments here, and there have been some advances in the kind of banking system, but it's a very it's a very complex process, um, and we still need to push further on that. And the question arises: What will be the international authority who will, in some ways, be charged with overseeing this? Because I don't think there is one, and the United Nations is less powerful than it was 
And that, I think, is an important thing for us to reflect upon. You know, um, I work at the LSE in the International Inequality Institute. We have a theme which I lead on tax justice. We're very concerned about working with tax justice networks. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that this community of activists and scholars working around tax justice issues are increasingly working internationally. So I think that's a really vital way for us to go, is to think about how we can develop a kind of more of an international, internationally aware and sensitive approach to the question of tax justice. Now, if, so I am completely aware of the, of the argument, and I support the argument that tax itself isn't enough. And there's kind of standard arguments to say that all tax can do is it can redistribute what's already what's already been acquired, you know, and therefore we need to think about more a more radical and structural changing of the economy, which I also support. But the question is, where do you begin? And I think that the question oh. of, of of taxing the wealthy, not taxing the rich, would be a means of also elaborating a stronger discussion around um, the nature of the economy more generally. To give an example of that. We've also been doing some work at the LSE. It's not, this isn't in the book, but we are doing some work at the LSE with, um, around the issue, issue of community wealth building, which is mm. an developed in certain parts of the UK, but also across the world, which is the argument that you should think about how different local communities can, can uh, develop their wealth networks together rather than have the wealth sucked out by financial instruments working or financial institutions working usually from major global cities. Um, and I'm you know, very encouraged by some of those developments. And I think, and therefore, I would see a, a focus on wealth tax as a means of opening up this bigger debate around the nature of wealth, how we re-embed wealth in communities and away from big metropolitan interests. But there, were, there is a lot to do, though. <laughs> it, in a lot, you know, you talk at the end of the book about how we can't just focus on policy, and I you know, really sympathise with that. It's not enough to just prove that something's wrong provide a solution and then expect it to be implemented. You have to be able to look at the political and social underpinnings of the kind of current um, uh, system of, uh, of politics that we have today. So politics and economics are highly intertwined to the extent you can really separate them at all. Um, and clearly, if we're going to get something like a wealth tax, it's going to require a big political movement that can shift the conversation, shift politics, shift political parties to such an extent that this these ideas become politically viable. These movements have kind of emerged in a lot of different parts of the world in recent years, you know, uh, in the US and the UK, in parts of Southern Europe, in Latin America increasingly as well. And yet you also have an argument in, in the book that we're seeing less class politics and the politics is returning to a kind of intra-elite axis so how do you see the emergence of more traditionally class-based political movements, but which also incorporate wider social movements? Um, and do you think that's a kind of necessary prerequisite to any of the change that you uh, want to see? Yeah. Um, so one of the chapters of my book uh, talks about trends in party politics and party identification. And... Uh, one of the arguments, which is, a, I wouldn't say it's contentious, hmm. but it is, you know, it's quite arresting, I think, is this point, which I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm mainly borrowing from the political scientists here, is that in, certainly in Europe, the, the traditional left, political left, associated with Labour Party in the UK, Social Democratic Parties in much of Europe, is on the retreat electorally. 
I'm sure it's it's varied a bit, but the, the trends, um, you know, in the, in the last few decades are quite striking. It's a kind of decline. And with that decline, I think we need to recognise that the historic politics of class, to put it in those terms, which are very much bound up with the working class as the kind of key progressive agent for change, those stakes of class have shifted. And I mean, let me be clear, you know, in my early career, I was not about the working class and I'm very kind of attached to, to that notion of, you know, the, the working class, the industrial working class as historic agent for progressive change. And, and no doubt um, in certain periods of history that had definitely been the case. But I do think now that we are kind of seeing the resurgence of the class politics, but it's a different kind of class politics. And I think that's very much true in the global south, which I agree with you, is where many of the most interesting developments are taking place. And that you know, the working class in the global south is not predominantly industrial workers, and it is much more complex. It's a group of you know, informal workers, people working in the gig economy, and such like. It's a different kind of class formation which we need to we need to grasp. So I'm I'm partly saying we need to kind of un loosen some of our associations about what class means and 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 weaken the you know, legacy of our thinking that this is something to do with coal miners and um, uh, people working in factories. Because it sometimes is, don't get me wrong. I mean, those groups are important. But I think certainly in Britain, we have this kind of almost iconic visualisation about the working class is bound up with this again, predominantly male, predominantly white group of, of um, workers. Uh, but the fact things have shifted and we and, cl- and, the, and the nature of class relations have, have shifted. And I therefore think that um, we need to be a bit looser, if that's the right word, or more open in, in uh, understanding where the class fractures are emerging these days. And they're not necessarily, not necessarily straightforwardly around kind of the old class divide between manual and non-manual work. Uh, just, to, just to underscore that point, I mean, I, I do agree with you very much. I've been very heartened by developments in Chile and the Colombia, uh, and other parts of the global south, where we are seeing these really interesting interventions taking place. And it's very striking that questions of wealth are at the heart of those, and the way in which wealth is tied up with structural inequalities. I'm very interested by the age divide, which comes out in many of these conflicts, because this goes back to my point about why wealth matters. You know, wealth is also predominantly pitting older people who've built up wealth assets, over time against younger people who um, predominantly do not have those wealth assets. And so, I, again, I, I would just call for a kind of intersectional way of thinking about these issues in which we, we see class is also bound up with age and race and gender and, and try and build a, build a movement around that recognition. So, Mike Savage, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. We were talking about Mike's book, The Return of Inequality, social change and the weight of the past it is a hefty read but it is worthwhile and i would encourage listeners to go out and get it so thank you so much mike for joining me today thank you